Welcome to Wines of the South, a podcast dedicated to the exceptional wines and their makers of the Southern Hemisphere. Join me on the journey as I trawl through the vineyards, leaving no stone unturned as we dig up the untold stories and the hidden gems that make up the very best of what the South has to offer. The first season and the start of this magical journey begins at the tip of the African continent in the winelands of the Cape of South Africa. It's a cool and overcast autumn day in Cape Town as I get into the car and prepare for the two-hour journey into the Hilmelen Arde Valley, just outside the seaside town of Hermanus in the Western Cape of South Africa. It's a gorgeous part of the world and aptly named. Hilmelen Arde translated means heaven and earth, and it certainly feels that way. I'm on my way to see Chris Arlite of Arlite Vineyards. His philosophy, the true wonder of wine is revealed when all the nonsense and lies are stripped away. In other words, no yeasts, no enzymes, no acidification, no wood, no manipulation. Just the voice of the land. As I turn away from the coast and enter the valley, the temperature drops further and rain begins to fall. As I navigate the twists and turns of the road further and deeper into this stunning valley, my mind wanders to a time I was last taking these same turns to meet Chris for the first time, more than 10 years ago. A time when Chris's very first vintage was still lying in barrel, without a name, without a claim. At the time, I was importing South African wine into Taiwan, and on one of my trips home to South Africa, I went to stay with Chris and see what he was up to. A decade later, and a lot has changed, both for Chris and I. We're both a little bit older, and hopefully a little wiser. Both have kids running around, and the first signs of grey hair. The sprouting grey is probably nothing to do with age, and everything to do with the kids. And his wine now has a name. And boy, oh boy, does it have a claim. Unbeknownst to either of us at the time, that very first vintage would bust out of the barrel and take the world by storm. And Chris will go down in history as one of South Africa's great winemakers. But life as a winemaker wasn't always a given. And fate, the universe, or divine providence as Chris would call it, would conspire in unsuspecting ways, nudging him towards his destiny. But I mean, you know, depending on your, your worldview, you either think it's an uh, interesting coincidence or divine providence, one of the two, but I lean towards the latter, of course. My, uh, my parents were both medical doctors, and uh, I suppose that's, you know, as a, as a kid of 16, 17, 18, I didn't really know what was out there in the world. I obviously wanted to get into medicine, but I didn't have the marks at the end of uh, my matric year at school. I figured if I did a, a Bachelor of Science degree, then maybe I could, 
you know, through the back door, if I did well enough in my first year, get into medicine, because a few kids tried that and some of them succeeded. But I don't know, man, I was just kind of lost, you know, after my gap year and, and working, you know, working at a school and working at a pub and playing rugby at a club, you know, I had quite an interesting gap year with a lot of travel in Europe and that kind of thing. Um, I was I was quite demotivated. I felt a bit directionless doing science, and I suppose I was quite immature. I was a very poor student. Um, I didn't really focus on my studies very much. You know, <laughs> for those listeners who've studied at Stellenbosch, you understand that campus life there is spectacular. And, you know, I suppose one way of characterizing what happened to me in the first year was that, you know, my immature self and campus life just collided with a lot of fanfare and, and celebration, you know, and um, not a lot of focus. So, you know, halfway through my first year, it became really apparent that I wasn't going anywhere near medicine, that's for sure, because, I mean, the marks were just not there and the effort levels, and I'd, I'd kind of, as I said, lost focus and lost my way, but I didn't have a direction, and that's not a good feeling. And then I started digging around a little bit to find out, you know, what my options were if medicine was not an option. You have to forgive the background winery noises. <laughs> it's just, that's where we are. And um, I had a few friends in res with me that were doing winemaking, and one of them was a really, really good friend. And it sounded like such an interesting uh, path to follow. Um, you know, I, I knew nothing about it. And yeah, so I, I just I figured out that I could change, change a few subjects and jump over to winemaking. So I had to work very hard for the first time in a while, for about six months to get over into the winemaking course. And and that was it. So we, I did viticulture and oenology. And then I made a very, very interesting discovery in that class. It was that there was um, a young woman sitting there. Ah, sweet amore. No story of wine would be complete without it. And the amazing Suzanne plays the part for us here and indeed is an integral part to the story of the wine itself. She and Chris would finish their studies, fall in love and travel the world together, working vintages from Australia to California, Germany to Bordeaux. Working in such diverse environments would hone their craft, making them both seriously proficient winemakers. But if you ask me, far more valuable was the people they met and the philosophies that they were introduced to over the course of their travels. And it was some of these principles that would eventually lead to the creation of their first vintage. Their world, as well as ours, would never be the same again. But even the best winemakers need to pay their dues. So the two of us finished uh, at the same time. Um, and then I need to try to work out what happened. She, she wanted to go to Australia to pay off a student loan. Um, so she went to work at a, a place called Tintara, a big winery in McLarenville. Um, and at that same time, I was, I'd, I'd done, you have to do a few harvests before you qualify. So I'd, I had done one vintage at uh, Fairview, which was awesome. The winemaking team there, Anthony Diago and those guys, it's an awesome team. Um, and learned a great deal there. Um, mostly learned how to squeegee floors really well. I'm very good at that. I still. was going to ask, what yeah. does that involve? <laughs> it involves you just doing whatever you're told, yeah, and, and trying to keep your attitude straight because the hours are long, and it's it's uh, and you. I mean, at that stage, you just know absolutely nothing. You know what it says in the textbooks, but you've never, you know, you've never messed around with pumps and pipes and 
But you're learning. You're learning. Yeah, you're learning. But the the trouble with you know university educated folks, you know, in a practical work environment, is that they they know a lot about uh, you know something that they know nothing about, basically. You know, which is kind of what what it was like for me at Fairview. You know, I tried my best, but there was just so much learning to do. And same at Flagstone. You know, I worked at Flagstone in '05 the next season just to finish off my studies, basically. And great experience. Um, I still think Bruce is one of the kind of rare. Uh, rare minds of the wine industry you know he's got these crazy ideas and a uh, very smart guy and it was awesome to work for him uh, learned a lot again and Suzanne at that time was trying to work off a student loan working in in Australia so where we finally sort of met each other again um, we went off to California together and that was the first vintage that we worked together but you know all the seller skills that I thought I'd learned at Fairview and and Flagstone were no good in in the states you know they those guys that I was working with in the winery operating on a whole different level, you know, just really fast, really accurate seller work. And so just scrambling, trying to keep up with him. I think I almost got fired twice just from not being able to keep up. So from Napa, we went to Western Australia and we worked at a massive winery outside of Perth called Horton. It's the biggest winery in, in Western Australia. Um, and it was such a valuable experience. So we, we were, all, again, part of like a team of 40 kind of seller interns, you know, managing a, a massive harvest. I can't remember how many tons we did that year. It was, uh, it was, it was big. I'll have to go and, and double check. But um, Suzanne had never um, actually been to Europe at all, and I'd, I'd been there a few times, but I'd never worked there. So off we went. We quit our jobs after the '09 harvest in South Africa, and then uh, worked in worked in Santa Emilion with, uh, you know, a, a really great family. Um, the winery is called Chateau Angelus. They're, they're quite well known. Um, just the quality control there was insane. You know, the the level of uh, effort they went to in the winery was very impressive, and it was just cool. I mean, the, it was our first time, like, immersed in the French wine culture, and obviously at that stage we'd already figured out that Bordeaux and South Africa have very, very little in common in terms of climate, you know, and it's not really a good model for us to look at. Um, I know that's probably a slightly controversial statement, but it, it isn't. It, clim, clim, you know, um, climatologically speaking, it's not great for us to look at Bordeaux. If not Bordeaux, what then? What style of wine is worth emulating on South African soil, or should local winemakers be trying to copy anything at all? Perhaps it's not the style of the wine in itself that is of interest, but rather the winemaking philosophy behind the wine. Chris and Suzanne weren't looking to bring European-style wine to South Africa, but it was in Europe that the penny dropped, and our young winemaking couple saw with crystal clarity their path laid out in front of them. We went over to uh, to the south of uh, south of France, close to a town called Perpignan. There's um, a winery there called Domaine Matassa, and and he's that guy Tom Liver, is a South African, and he's married into the Gorby family, and they've got Domaine Gorby. So we we just spent a day with them, um, talking about what they were doing and and uh, tasting the wines they were making. It was really eye opening, um, you know, especially the way they looked at the viticulture and um, and the totally non-interventionist winemaking. And, uh, you know, Tom opened a 2003 Matassa Blanc for us out of Magnum at dinner, and it blew my mind, that wine. You know, to see what they're doing with um, with with their old vine native whites, you know, they've got uh, Makibo and uh, a few other, or Grenache Gris and a few other odds and ends over there that are really unique to the place. And then from there, we worked our way um, up to Germany. Basically, and we worked the harvest there in Traub and Traubach in, in the middle Mosul, 
working with Riesling, some unbelievable old Riesling vineyards at Feingut Vollenweide. Um, very tough vintage, but learned a great deal from Daniel. Uh, a lot of those ideas I still apply today in the winemaking. So, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd heard a lot about minimalist winemaking, you know, but never actually done it. You know, so with Daniel, it was the first time that we were seeing that, like, n no sulfur at the press at all, nothing, just grape juice, no gas cover, no, no, just nothing, you know, just pure grape juice going into a fermenter of some kind and being left alone until it starts fermenting. So, yeah, Daniel was doing this minimalist winemaking and his wines were just sublime and his farming was also, um, he was farming organically, his vineyards looked completely different to the neighbor's vineyards where it was just like black slate and his vineyards there were wild strawberries and butterflies and it was incredible. And the wines tasted different. We tasted loads of wines in the middle Mosel and Daniel's wines tasted different. So we'd had this time now, okay, in 2010, so it really gets you thinking. If you, if you have a glass of old wine Aceptico from Santorini next to a glass of Grenache Gris or Makebor from Kals uh, next to a glass of Mosel Riesling, you know, they're three completely different wines in the glass. There's nothing really in common there. Um, except for this really, really crucial common thread, which is the fact that they're all completely authentic wines, you know, and that's a, an abused word these days, unfortunately, but they are completely authentic wines. They cannot come from anywhere else. And, uh, you know, that, that really rung true with myself and Suzanne. We thought about that a bit, and we, we decided that when we start our venture in the Cape, we want to make Cape wine, you know, that can only come from the Cape. And uh, that really leads you into a, a, a small clutch of grapes that we think we know because the literature is a bit obscure. We think we know have been here for a very long time, you know, since the since the 1650s, um, which is certainly long enough for us to think of them as, as you know, items of, of, of heritage. And the, the awesome thing was that. Uh, because Suzanne and I were traveling together, we were exposed to the same things. Um, and so when we started our business together, it was very cool for us to have um, that, you know, that shared core philosophy around what makes wine great, you know, and what the potential mistakes are with winemaking. Yeah, it, it made life a lot easier because we'd both listened to Saudi, we'd both listened to Libba, we both worked for Fallenweide. Um, we had this, these shared sort of mentors, I suppose you could say, and... Um, We'd been to a tasting that Ibn Saudi gave at Wine Cellar um, on uh, his wines from Priorat. Uh, he was involved in that project at the time, which he's now uh, quit, he's quit that project since. But at the time, he was still very much involved. And um, we drove through from Stellenbosch. I remember it was Dani Karinas um, and uh, Suzanne and myself in the car. And on the way through, we were very chatty and joking and... and uh, it was cool, nice to see Donnie. And then we, we had this tasting with Eben. There are probably 45, 50 people in the room. Eben pouring those wines from those various vineyards in, in Priorat. And uh, none of the wines are perfect, um, but every single one of them was brilliant, if you know what I mean. They, they had, you know, these little idiosyncrasies and had a lot of personality and charm and very, very good wines. And, uh, and just like wines that, that really spoke about a place, you know. And that's a very attractive idea. And I remember on the way home, the car was dead quiet. After a few minutes, or, or I don't know how long, 
Donnie just piped up from the backseat. He said, yes, Yella, what can no do? Which basically means like, what the hell are we going to do now? You know, like you can't carry on on your normal path with wine after after that experience. So do you think Saadi was someone who you, at that time you would have been looking up to? Or? Yeah, definitely. I think Eben was a, um, and still is an exceptionally influential character in the in the Cape. Yeah, I think he had a, a very, uh, very positive influence on the young winemakers in South Africa that saw that, you know, it's actually possible to start something and succeed, um, given that you are working to, with, the, with the correct philosophy and um, and also very positive for the Swartland. You know, I think uh, him and Charles Beck was, was a big part of that story too, you know, but um, with the confidence that, that they proceeded, you know, to uh, really put the Swartland on the map and, and not be shy to charge solid prices and, you know, make a huge effort to to really uh, make quality wine from a very underrated area. And today, you know, the Swartland is, is still probably the most um, exciting uh, um, part of the Cape. That whole era is and was super influential on many young winemakers. Um, and we're not young anymore, but we were younger then. That was, you know, 10 plus years ago. And it definitely uh, even, uh, had a big influence, as did Adi and the Mullineuse were really up and coming at that point. The whole Swatland Revolution gang, you know, and, and uh, Mark Kent's project, you know, they just, it's all about perspective, you know, and allowing young folks to think outside the box a little bit, you know, by, by resetting the boundaries of what's possible in the Cape. And we've also, seeing that done, tried to follow suit by resetting boundaries of what can, what we think were boundaries, that, you know, for old Van Shen and, and uh, for what we consider basically a national treasure. And so it was, with a philosophy inspired by their travels and a few local legends, as well as a few pockets of long-since-forgotten old Shannon vines, that Arlite Vineyards was born. We wanted to make something like absolutely South African in its identity, um, and unquestionably high quality. So I made a great effort to find very, very special old vineyards. Um, and I was helped uh, in that re- regard by Rosa. She helped us with a couple. We'd found a few. I was on Google Earth and I was in the car and lots of phone calls. And um, I mean, at that time, there were plenty of old vineyards around, mostly not very well farmed and mostly undervalued. And they're there, you know, they're still there. But um, back then, you know, it was like a treasure hunt. You know, if you went looking for them, you could find them. You just had to be dedicated. And um, we found lots of old vineyards and lots of not so old vineyards in their 30s. So that's how you do it. You just drive around, you talk to people and, and hope that they'll part with their grapes. And, you know, all of this was predicated upon the fact that the resource was undervalued and that the grape price in South Africa at the time and still is you know, very, very low, too low to be sustainable. So when a, um, a youngster comes along with no track record and, and probably no prospects um, and offers you double or triple what you are getting for a couple of times, you might as well just take a risk and go for it. And, and most of them do and did. So that's how we ended up accruing, you know, the parcels that we did um, over time. And, and uh, most of those places where we got a foothold early on, we still have, and we, we now have like really big you know, blocks that we, big blocks, but like for a company our size, we have a proper like a whole block that we can manage or a, a whole section that comes just to us that we can, you know, chat to the farmer about what he's doing um, and the growers we're working with uh, you know so that whole process uh, Neil happened you know over the period of 
the first two or three years and then yeah, even more, four years, we were always looking, looking, looking for new stuff and finding things sometimes and um, and then we went through a process of whittling down again, <laughs> of sort of throwing away things that weren't actually as good as they looked initially and building and breaking down and building and breaking down, you know, until we now, 10 years later, are at a place where I can confidently say that all of the growers that we're working with are good growers and uh, all the vineyards we're working with are um, what I would call best of breed, you know within you know the soil type that they're on or the, the variety that they are they are hard to beat um and that's that so because we because of the winemaking philosophy that underpins the business we're absolutely dependent on the quality of the vineyard i mean we don't acidify we don't use any selected yeasts we don't use any new oak we don't do anything to the wine it's just grape juice and so we really need that to be very good grape juice i want to read you something that i think you've you've said the true wonder of wine is revealed when all the nonsense and lies are stripped away. Amen. Sounds like a good quote. Is that me? I think it's you. Great. Yeah, I think that um, it depends on how you look at wine, you know, and I'm not, uh, it's very easy to get pre preachy and sound a bit ridiculous, you know, assuming that everybody needs to hold up wine as some kind of idol in their lives and worship it and think that it, it must be a specific way and and, and you know, that's not right either. You know, it's perfectly acceptable for a company to make wine um, in whatever way they see fit and sell it as a product. That's totally fine. But in the, in the space that we occupy, um, wine is a different thing. It is, it is a very artisanal product and it, it rubs shoulders very closely with art forms, you know, um, even though I, I don't think it's strictly speaking art. It does <clears throat> move in the same areas. I don't think it's art simply because it's not the person that's expressing themselves. It's the person doing their best to allow the land to express itself. So the land is the star, not the person. Um, and that's the subtle difference there. So uh, I think that at our at the pointy end of the industry where we are with the higher prices and everything like that, I, I think that um, you know. I, I don't think it's acceptable to, to manipulate the wine, you know, and, and especially if you're trying to sell it honestly as, a, as, a, as an agricultural, as a rare type of agricultural product from a very specific piece of land or specific types of vineyards, and this is how they taste, you know, to then manipulate, um, it's fine to do it, you know, uh, as long as you clear about it, as long as you um, are open about it, you know, but if you are maintaining that you are adhering to a certain philosophy of purity then you should do that so I think a, a pure clean philosophy is is um, very very important to the types of wines we're making um, you know and to have the trust of the people that are buying the wines know that they know that, that this is grape juice from a good vineyard you know um, spontaneously fermented with the yeast that come from that vineyard uh, you know with, with no external nonsense and certainly not flavored with any trees or anything like that. It just is what it is, you know? So that's what we're aiming for and hoping for. So the last time I was here, your wine was, you hadn't released your first vintage yet. Sure, it's a long time ago. <laughs> we, we were barrel tasting what would be your first vintage. Uh, I don't even think you had a name for the wine yet. Um, can you remember what that felt like to put, because I mean, I imagine it's quite an expression of you coming through in that wine. What did it feel like to put that out into the world? 
Yeah, I'm trying to remember the emotions. You know, we we both had a very sort of childlike uh, faith. Um, you know, we believed that God had like opened all these doors for us to make this wine, and you know, not that it had anything to do with His kingdom or anything like that, but just what we were going to do for a living. You know, and we um, we felt like that He would make a way. You know, so <laughs> it might sound strange to your listeners, but so I had a lot of faith that the thing would succeed. Um, but it, I still, you know shat my pants every time I, I, I had to present the wine to somebody, um, you know, because I, I, I thought it was quite good, but I, I wasn't sure, you know, because I was so biased towards the wine and towards the vineyards and I didn't really trust my judgment. And <laughs> I remember like taking the wine out of, um, you know, taking a little barrel sample or a sample out of tank way too early and like stuffing it in front of Jamie Good at a some Swatland event and like he tasted it and said, oh, that's pretty good. You know, and I was devastated. I thought, oh, Jamie, it's it's not pretty good. It's really good. You know, come on. And uh, but I mean, in my in my naivety and and uh, you know overzealous state, I uh, I should have just waited and let the wine be. Eventually, we released it in May, and by the time we did, the wine was closer to ready. And we had uh, Richard Kelly has been with us since the very beginning. You know, and it was really instrumental in helping to get us out there. And, but like all these crazy things happened. I mean, like Richard, on his way back from South Africa on that first uh, visit, he'd come and sat with us here where, where you stayed with us um, in the in the cottage. You know, he sat across the table and, and I, you know, I opened the wine for him and sort of watched him nervously taste the wine. And this guy is a, is a big deal. I mean, he's he knows shin and backwards and um, knows the law very well and, and has lived in South Africa for seven years and is a, you know, MW and all of that very, very well-respected guy. And there's a bit of a poker face when he tastes, you know, he doesn't really show you anything when he's tasting. And then I just sort of saw the edge of his mouth turn up a little bit and he, and he started smiling and he said, okay, so what's the plan? And I didn't know what he meant, you know. And I, and I said very uh, naively and very honestly that I wanted to make the best uh, white wine in South Africa. That was my ambition. Um, and I, I don't know if we've ever achieved that since, but I have tried. But um, that was my honest ambition, really. And uh, I wasn't um, trying to sound uh, overconfident or anything. That's really what I wanted to do. I didn't expect that, um, that we were anywhere near doing it. But that's what I told him. And, and he said, no, no, that's not what he meant. He doesn't mean, what's my plan? I mean, what's the business plan? How are you going to do this? And I, I didn't have an answer. I didn't know. I'd made the wine and I was sitting looking at about 5,000 200 bottles or something like that and I, d I didn't know how I was going to sell it I was just waiting for as I said to you before I was just waiting for the doors to open and something to happen <laughs> um, we'd already you know done a bit of trudging around Cape Town trying to sell the wine and, and people loved it and so I had a bit of hope that it would take but once Richard got hold of the wine and got it over to the UK and um, got in front of a few journalists uh, it was a crazy snowball effect and I mean you know, just as one example of, of uh, um, providence, you know, Neil uh, Martin was in the Cape at the same time as Richard and, and they happened to sit next to each other on the airplane on the way home. And uh, Richard told Neil about this wine that he tasted and then I was, <clears throat> our wine was put onto the, uh, at that time it was um, uh, the portfolio of the company that Richard was working working for. And uh, so we had a, suddenly had a UK importer and I had to go and visit the UK uh, later that year. So. Um, Neil asked to set up a meeting and we, we managed to meet each other in a hotel lobby and I gave him the wine and by December 
we'd sold out of the wine. Uh, quite a bit of it to the UK. We just had suddenly picked up importers from goodness knows where. They'd been reading uh, the journalism, you know, the stuff that had been written about the wine. It just all snowballed so quickly, you know. How was that validation? Um, it felt really amazing, you know. It felt like really surreal, like really, really surreal that people actually liked the wine and that it actually, like, globally, like, like Jancis had it in her, Julia Harding tasted the wine for Jancis and she wrote an unbelievable review for the wine and, and had, had it as their wine of the week in October. And Neil gave it 96, which I think at the time was the, the highest uh, scoring South African white wine, you know, ever, I think. And uh, it made just, it was just people were talking about it, you know, we just didn't understand how it was all happening. What did you name the wine? Cartology. <laughs> the study of maps or charts, you know, based on my obsessive uh, looking at Google Earth and and looking at the, you know, I've got a map of the Cape in my office. I've, I've always had one. And, uh, you know, wondering about these far-flung mountains and, and lost vineyards and all of that stuff. And um, I'm good friends with uh, a really good Pinot and Chard winemaker, actually just a good winemaker in general, called Peter Allen Finlayson, which I'm sure some of your listeners will, will have heard his name. And uh, we used to drive around a bit in the in the early days when he also rented some space at this winery when we were still quite small. And uh, we were trying to work out a name <laughs> for the wine, and I already had the name Radio Lazarus. Um, and I was fiddling around with names to do with something with maps and, and uh, you know, maybe cartography or something like that, and it just didn't sound. And then Finn just blurted out cartology. You know, and I was like, shit, that's it. And that was it. Cartology had its maiden vintage in 2011, and it was and still is considered to be one of the best white wines to come out of South Africa ever. Cartology is a blend of old vine Shannons with a touch of a very special old vine Semillon. And it is this touch of Sem that I find interesting. And actually that idea came from that 2010 between the two vintages working as a wine steward at La Colombe. At the, in the back of the restaurant, we had all the by-the-glass open, uh, by-the-glass wines, you know, that we had to check every night and uh, make sure they were in good condition, etc. You know, um, checking the Bukenotes Clough Sem, you know, and then right next to it was the beautiful Hope Marguerite from Beaumont, and then I just put a little bit of Hope Marguerite on top of the Sem, you know, and you know it was largely Shannon and a bit of Semillon, and I just thought, yes, that really uh, works on the palate. <laughs> It changes the way the Shannon works. You know, Shannon's got a, normally a good attack and, and um, quite a nice long finish normally, but sometimes can be a little bit hollow. You know, where Sam is very different. Sam can be a bit short, but it can be very like deep. You know, it can have a, a really awesome textured mid palate, and and I found that even at quite low volumes, it makes quite a big difference to the way the wine moves over the palate. So um, yeah, we <laughs> we always had a bit of sem in there. And that that was another example of providence. You know, like three different people told me about that old semion vineyard in a space of a week, and I just thought, yo, if I, if I don't go and check this out, then I'm a fool. So I, I went there and I had a look, and there was La Colline. You know, yeah, it was just there. You know, basically undervalued, like you know, eighty something. Or at that stage, it was it was planted in uh, 1936. At that stage, it was in its late 70s or whatever it was. Old, old, uh, beautiful old Semyon just sitting there, you know, and the cap had all these little wonders sort of tucked away. 
and I had this kind of picture of like, how cool would it be to have cartology as basically a village wine? And I remember saying that to Neil Martin the first time we met, like, you know, even though it's like kind of a, the vineyards are very serious vineyards that are in that wine. It could form like a foundational level for a business, which could then expand on the idea of of this map of the Cape, you know, by highlighting special parts of the Cape, and that and that's the path we've taken basically. So, but there is potential for paradox here. One might argue that if the winemaking philosophy is to express a particular piece of land, how then can you blend vineyards? Well, I, I think you can. Just as the Cape is a melting pot of different cultures representing its heritage, so too could a wine represent the Cape with more than one vineyard. But it was this idea, this Puritan view of the philosophy, that would lead Chris down a path of single vineyards and almost spelled disaster for our beloved cartology. And then in 2017, for that vintage, I really wanted to change gears and I felt that we'd had a really good vintage in 17. And I was actually at that stage toying with the idea of letting 17 be the final vintage of cartology. Yeah, seven vintages, call it a day. And um, yeah, that's really what I was thinking. And because I, at that, I was going through a phase. I, <laughs> at that stage, I was, you know, getting probably almost a little puritanical with the, with, with the philosophies of the thing that all wine should be from a place. You know, and then I went to Barolo and I tasted wines that were like from the whole of Barolo, you know, from many different, but not just one brico or one place, you know. And um, I got over myself, you know, and I realized that cartology was very relevant um, still to people that wanted to understand, you know, Cape Heritage wine. And, and that even though it, it might not be a single vineyard wine, it is, the Cape is still a place and that's okay. So I got over it and I, 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 you know, actually kind of got a little bit more in love with, with cartology and I, it's still my baby. Because I was in that state of mind, I took a step to release a lot more single vineyards. Um, so I released the, the False Bay Coast of Stellenbosch under Nautical Dawn, um, Paderberg, um, the vineyards that are now under our control uh, that we've bought since, under a label called Fire by Night. And then Heilkrans from Odam in the Skotbrach, and we still already had the others, Magnetic North and La Colline. So we had now had a like a, a real kind of a full house of really interesting single vineyards that all were, you know, completely different wines. And, and uh, that was a really high point for me in our, in our winemaking life, that release of the 17s, I thought really showed emphatically that, you know, Chenin Blanc, you know, and, and even Semyon, but in particular in this case, Chenin Blanc as a vehicle for, you know, the South African landscape is, is really articulate. And that's really exciting. So it's fine for me to have a bunch of different Chenins from different vineyards. Um, and see how different they are and uh, you know despite the, like for instance the fire by night versus nautical dawn you know they're both on granite soils in this case but uh, nautical dawn is very close to the sea in Stellenbosch it ripens a bit earlier fire by night is is uh, facing north not southeast and it's on granite as well at, uh, um, on the Paderberg mountain so you've got this Swartland mountain versus seaside Stellenbosch on very similar soils and also, uh, you know, similar vine age, about around 40 years old. And uh, they're so different, you know. Chris has stated that he believes Shannon is the grape that truly expresses the heritage of the Cape. But is there really no room for anything else in the future? You've kind of answered this already through this discussion, but why no red wines? Or are they on the cards? Yeah, I really like red wine, and my wife Suzanne loves red wine. Um, she she drinks a lot more red wine than white wine. Um, 
So yeah, as I said to you before, I think that at the time we started, I think that the Capes White wines, you know, were um, had a better chance of of uh, shooting the lights out overseas in terms of just outright quality, um, and that was then. You know, I think a lot has has, has happened with the red wine scene. I think bit, probably better viticulture and understanding our sites a little bit better have led to some really stunning reds at the moment. Um, I mean, I could obviously mention the Himalaya because I've got a lot of friends here, and the, and the Pinots are, are often quite convincing and, and very good. But the wines that have got my attention now are the um, False Bay Coast of Stellenbosch um, Shiraz wines, the Syros, like uh, Sons of Sugarland and uh, Graft, and, and those types of wines um, from these um, relatively cool south and southeast facing granite slopes close to the sea. I mean, we just just remarkable wines, you know, and then. Um, Obviously, you know what's happening in the Swatland with with uh, Syrah and, and then the Grenache and Pekingese Clove. You know, we we've got some very exciting reds. But, um, you know, I I thought I would stay in our lane and and, and stick with the heritage whites um, in order to specialize, and that if we ever did make a red, it would have to very much fit in with that um, identity as a as a South African heritage wine. And, and there there aren't that many grapes uh, that we can tell anyway. From as I said, the literature is quite foggy that we're here very early on the one really strong candidate for for being here very early and having quite a, a an interesting identity that's very much linked to the cape is pontak it's a quite a rare grape in the global context it's it's virtually extinct in in portugal where it also resides uh, originally from the southwest of france um and i think named after the Pontac family, as far as I know, that used to own Horbrion in the 1700s. We had a fair bit of Pontac before Phylloxera, and it, you know, uh, you know, certainly uh, commentators like Leipold raved about dry Pontac. Um, and before Phylloxera, it was uh, much more widely planted. Uh, obviously, then it's almost extinct now. But, but if we do make a red, it would almost certainly be a Pontac, and uh, we are now in the process of this year planting a small Pontac vineyard on our farm in the Swatland. I should mention that we bought uh, we bought that farm that we were buying grapes from for so many years on the Paderberg and according to um, according to uh, the literature that we can find um, Pontac does well on relatively warm well-drained uh, slopes around Paul you know which is granite soil so we're not that far from Paul we have granites and we have very well-drained soil so I'm hoping that we can turn out a good Pontac the problem is virus with Pontac. You know, the material we've got now is very rare and very virused. So um, it's in the process of being cleaned up um, and now is finally available to plant. I think Hartenberg, who bottled the last commercial Pontac in 2000, have uh, replanted a vineyard two or three years ago. So that should be close to production. I know Eben has got some in the ground and, and we soon will have. So yeah, if we do make a red, it'll be Pontac. I think, but those, as I mentioned earlier, those zero wines from uh, the Swartland and south of Stellenbosch, you know, they really get me excited. And uh, yeah, we, we are busy trying to start up a completely separate business, uh, a different thing altogether with uh, good friends of ours here in Amanus, um, just to make one wine, which would be a zero. Yeah, because I flip and love zero. It's awesome. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's such a cool wine grab.
And that, ladies and gentlemen, wraps up the story and evolution of Arlite Vineyards, deeply rooted in Chenin Blanc and maps of the Cape. But before we go, who wants some wine? The guests of our show have all very kindly offered a single bottle of one of their special wines, which at the end of each episode will go to one lucky listener. To stand a chance to win, please go to winesofthesouth.co.za for details. Wines of the South is produced by Telltale Media and hosted by me, Neil. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Cheers for now, and we'll catch you next week for another journey through the vineyards of the South. <laughs>